This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we're going to be talking with Andrew Demchuk about his most recent publication, Three Cities After Hitler, Redemptive Reconstruction Across Cold War Borders. Andrew, welcome to the channel. Why don't you start by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Well, thanks for the invitation for the interview. It's such a joy to be here again on New Books Network. Uh, So I'm a professor at American University in Washington, D.C., and there I teach courses on Germany, Eastern Europe, urban history, forced migration, and some European surveys. And I suppose, uh, you know, who who am I as a scholar? I mean, one of the quick places we go back to is the dissertation. Um, I did my dissertation research at the University of Illinois, uh, and my mentor there was Peter Fritchie. Also on my committee were Mati Bunzel and Maria Todorova. And I focused on the politics of memory among Germans expelled from Eastern regions that became part of Poland after 1945. These are areas such as Silesia, East Prussia, Pomerania. And I was trying to understand how human beings traumatized by the loss of this homeland, this Heimat, steadily recognized that the world they nostalgically remembered was lost forever and best experienced in their memories. And it was a process that helped to disempower revanchist political narratives for returning to reconquer these lost territories. So using sort of cultural history to answer political questions with a grassroots approach. And it was as I was doing this research that Mati Bunzel, one of my advisors, helped me to get the chance to spend summer of 2006 at the Dubnov Institute for Jewish History in Leipzig, formerly part of East Germany. And it was there I was researching the experience of Holocaust survivors from the largest city in these pre-war German eastern territories beyond the Oder and Neisse rivers. The city called Breslau when it was German, renamed Wrocław when it became Polish. And even as I came to know the urban landscape in Leipzig and Wrocław, I also was often in a city called Frankfurt am Main in former West Germany, the closest city to Marburg, where I was doing research as a German academic exchange fellow, a DAAD fellow from 2007 to 2008 at the Herder Institute. And so that's how I came to know Frankfurt. Leipzig and Wrocław, and how they became part really of who I am. Three cities that had been part of Germany before 1945, but were rebuilt under West German, East German, and Polish regimes after 1945. 
And so as I was writing and defending my dissertation back in 2010, I resolved that if I ever got a job and I could undertake another project, I wanted to compare the post-war reconstruction of these cities. You know, as a reader, I actually really appreciated this methodological approach, this comparative approach between these uh, three urban case studies with different post-war geopolitical trajectories. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more uh, beyond just being in these places and really having these experiences about why you selected these three cities? Sure, absolutely. So um, my methodological approach was informed by um, a lot of urban history, a lot of comparative history, things that were new to me and that were really a fun adventure, right? Moving into a a new field because I had never studied architectural history before. Uh, As a kid, I'd thought maybe when I was 14, I'd like to be an architect, but but now I was going to get to do architectural history. And my, my conviction that these spaces could be bound together into a common history became stronger in the midst of my dissertation that we shouldn't think of the German heritage uh, and this this post-war story as ending on the Oder and Neisse rivers, that we should be able to somehow bind these areas together and urban history became a way to do it. And so in terms of my methods, um, there were four scholars in particular amongst many others that really inspired me. Um, one being uh, Klaus von Behme. He's a political scientist. He was actually born in a town near Breslau uh, in, in the former Eastern territories who wrote this magisterial work comparing East and West German reconstruction, but he would make allusions to these lost territories. And it was this huge sort of um, survey uh, that showed it could be done, but it didn't have that, that archival and grassroots approach. That was done really in the second scholar's work who really inspired me, Jeffrey Diefendorf, whose book, The Wake of, In the Wake of War, really went into the deep archives in, in Cologne and many other cities of former West Germany to really uncover this thesis that inspired me so much that local history and local conditions can matter more than national ones in terms of comparison or things that don't compare. The third scholar was Michael Meng, who used archives to focus on synagogues across East Germany, West Germany, and Poland, the question of the the fate of synagogues in all three of these countries. And the the fourth scholar would be Gregor Thum, who wrote this impressive urban biography for how Breslau became Wrocław. And I wondered, what new stories could I tell if I looked in the archives in Wrocław and, and with a focus on comparison uh, with other urban cities? Is, is Wrocław so very singular? And it was my, my great dream to become a fellow of the Humboldt Foundation, which came to realization so that for 17 months in 2014 and 2015, I could research all three of these cities with a home base at the Humanities Institute for East Central Europe, the, uh, the GWZO, G-W-Z-O in Leipzig, with my uh, dear mentor and friend, Arnold Bartetsky, who really believed in the project from the beginning, that we were comparing three cities that were historically trading centers, not places where princes lived, but architecturally similar as trading cities on the Via Regia, the royal road that uh, interconnected this area from the Middle Ages onward. And uh, this comparison very much like my first book in its own way, I was looking at, at, at grassroots history, 
cultural history and now architectural history and history of memory to answer some of these bigger political questions. To what extent is ideology decisive in the way that reconstruction happens? When can we compare things in ways that are maybe uh, beyond ideological differences? When do we find a common story? And I had no thesis going and just that comparison must be possible. The thesis really developed as I moved in and wrote a book that I, I hope is readable for non-experts too, for lay readers and for students that can just also have fun with, with cities. Pittsburgh University Press was very generous in letting me have 150 pictures in the book, um, many of them coming from archives that never have been seen before outside of archival files. And Mike Bechthold came back to help me do maps again. He did my maps in my previous book, Bowling for Communism, and he is a meticulous cartographer and artist. Yeah, I must admit, it actually is a very beautiful publication and it's heavy in your hands. It's like one of those books that you want to pick up off of a shelf and read. Um, and it's certainly quite accessible for everyday readers. Um, as we're kind of moving into the core of your argument, one of the main ideas that you grapple with is the idea of redemptive reconstruction. Can you tell us a little bit more about this idea and how it applies to these three cities? Well, here again, it's useful to look at the what bound them together, right? All three cities experienced physical destruction from wartime bombardment, as well as really this ideological um, burden after the Shoah, the massive waves of ethnic cleansing, and other legacies of Nazi racial ideology. And so these three cities that had been part of Weimar Germany were rebuilt by these three competing, ideologically competing regimes after the defeat of Nazism. And so they had this shared starting point, these shared ruins that even looked very similar because they'd all been trading cities, um, but then rebuilt under West German, East German, and Polish regimes that claimed in their rhetoric that they were rebuilding them under very different uh, bases. The architecture they were going to put into these cities would have symbolically very different meanings. So out of that context, then, very late in the stages of assessing and reassessing my data, uh, coming out of a, a, a workshop that American University paid for, where I had some very astute comments from colleagues, um, I found this, this glue that brought it all together that I termed redemptive reconstruction. And redemptive reconstruction is basically how this what this top-down process from politicians, urban planners, and architects who were paternalistically trying to redeem their post-war cityscapes. It's my term for what this process was. And I was surprised to realize that whether you built in an aesthetically modern form, right, glass and steel, the city of the future, or you were building in something that aesthetically looked old, right? These old looking facades that were being reconstructed to look maybe like what was there before, maybe very different, but it looks old. These buildings were not all, it's not just that they were all modern in and of themselves and their substance, but they were also part of the same redemptive narrative, right? And redemptive really belongs in scare quotes due to its inherently top-down subjective and selective quality. And here, I mean, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to just give a quick quote 
out of my book that I think much more concisely defines what I mean by redemptive reconstruction. That sounds amazing. Share it with us. So pages three and four, at the very end of page three, I say that the effort to build a usable identity, which I call redemptive reconstruction, meant more than just the physical act of construction across ravaged urban landscapes. Cities whose pre-war appearance reflected imperial, interwar, and Nazi-era styles were aesthetically re-evaluated and reshaped through two intertwined and eminently modern trends. First, whether through restoring damaged monuments or crafting replicas based on landmarks that were gone, choice local edifices were reconstructed as core sacred sites and ensembles to redeem local and national narratives alike. Second, these tokens of a reimagined past were staged against a brave new city of the future to be realized in projected triumphs of modern urban planning and architectural form that swept away even more architecture than that which had been irrevocably lost in the war. In essence, notwithstanding varied and competing internal schemes over successive phases of Cold War construction and demolition, all three cities took place as simplified architectural narratives whose historically layered complexities only survived in fragments where redemptive reconstruction had proven less vigorous, sometimes because local residents had taken action to save and appropriate them outside the official narrative, end quote. So as the book reaches the 60s and 70s, it measures increasing dissonance between how especially the two German cities, but also the Polish city to an extent, um, had been remade. Local people preserved major faults and just how redemptive the urban landscape actually appeared to them. And so in this manner, Three Cities After Hitler, uh, quote, applies architecture and urban planning to illustrate how larger questions of democracy, civic activism and identity, and memory politics took shape at the local level in ways that confirmed, confronted, and transcended state ideology in the shadow of Hitler. Uh, Speaking of Hitler... Uh, I'm kind of curious, uh, and I, I definitely saw the thread woven throughout the, the text, but what is the place of Hitler and much more broadly the Holocaust in urban reconstruction in these three cities after 1945? Well, I should preface that by saying I was never convinced that Hitler should be in the title, right? Um, but it's not that Pittsburgh wanted it to sell books. I, I did. It was ultimately my choice just because <clears throat> this is a story of three cities, bound together by their need to rebuild after the decimation that Hitler and his many degrees of helpers represented. So Hitler himself is not an actor in my book. I'd say you could think of him as more of a ghost because the book largely begins after Hitler has already died. Apart from some context in chapter one, he's, he's gone. And yet his legacy lives on right? These physical legacies and ideological legacies. And so one sees this um, also, for instance, in German architectural biographies. I, I had a lot of fun in chapter one in a, in a closing section talking about the Nazi past 
uh, in the biographies of numerous architects, not just in West German cities, but in East German cities too. There's this idea in East Germany that all the Nazis fled to the West after the end of Nazism. And of course, you can see that this is not the case with the kind of archival detail, uh, the very intimate local detail I could get to in the, at the biographical level uh, in that chapter. So... I would say, though, that just as Nazism and Hitler were selectively forgotten through much erasure in each city, at best, whether you're in a Polish city or a German city, Nazism and Hitler are collective victimization. We, we suffered and now we're finally free of Nazism, right? The Holocaust, too, like Hitler, was this abject past. Michael Meng calls the synagogues an abject past in his book. And I I like applying that wonderful term that he brings in because this the Holocaust had very little to do with the larger redemptive narrative. When we talk about redemptive reconstruction, we're talking about how they wanted to recraft the cities, those in charge, and also how people wanted to reshape it by the 60s and 70s against that redemptive narrative. And apart from a few exceptions, the Nazi past and the legacies of Kristallnacht and the Holocaust are not part of that narrative and how they're trying to recraft it. So it was a tension for me in writing the book. I don't want to join in the erasure of these elements, but I want to also feature very much what they're trying to do, even as I talk about what is erased. So over the course of these, your study of these three cities, what kinds of shared characteristics, like tangible, empirical characteristics, did you find across these three cities? And what kinds of differences? Well, the the process of change um, that I follow with these empirical characteristics is really reflected, I think, in the chronology chronological format the book follows. This this is a a book that demanded a rigid format. It really did more than anything I've written before, and probably will ever write again, because I felt like. If you're entering into these vast urban landscapes with so many architectural examples, so many human stories, you could get lost in it, right? I think that the, 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 the deeper we go into human stories away from overarching surveys, the more complex it gets. And saying history is complex is interesting, but not really a thesis. So... I created this format to try to help the reader to understand sort of the, the, the chronological development in a multi-layered, multi-layered way. So uh, the first chapter, of course, offers the context of construction, of destruction, of Nazi construction, of course, and also these architectural biographies. But then every subsequent chapter follows this chronological narrative. And I begin each chapter with state level analysis. You cannot understand the local level without understanding what's going on in terms of state policy and reconstruction and the way sometimes in which these state narratives are are building off of each other. And then out of that state level analysis, I then enter into the local level, which is the bulk of the chapter. And then I usually end with a comparative vignette Right. So chapter two uh, is the immediate post-war era uh, that was famously called an era of dreams in scholarship. And this is a, an optimistic period, really, where their emphasis is on what I call sacred sites. So in 
Frankfurt am Main in West Germany, one of these sacred sites was Goethe's house. Goethe's, the interesting thing about bombing is bombs are indiscriminate in what they destroy, and often they destroy the things that you would find the most redeemable after the Nazi Reich, right? Goethe's house, Goethe, this humanist who should be such an emblem, the house where he was born is almost completely obliterated. How should it be rebuilt? And however it was going to be rebuilt, whether as a replica or as a modern museum, it was never a doubt this was going to be a sacred site. And so beyond aesthetics, the debate about aesthetics tells us something about how Goethe is supposed to embody a better Germany. Whereas just a block away, a giant fascist era building that survived the war mostly intact because it's more modern and the bombs just didn't wreck it as badly. It's just there and we don't want to talk about it, right? In Leipzig, uh, the, the uh, place where Johann Sebastian Bach was buried uh, was a sacred site. Uh, in Wrocław, suddenly this city that had been German before uh, and also had a large Jewish population, the third largest Jewish population in uh, in a German city. Suddenly, if Kristallnacht, the Jews uh, flee or are murdered. The Germans are then forced out after World War II. You have a complete population exchange where a city of about 620, 630,000 people is emptied out and replaced ultimately with a Polish population that has no history there. And so in this city, your Polish population looking for a sacred site, one of those sites is the cathedral in the city, which your communist government is rebuilding as a sacred site that is somehow to hearken to a medieval Polish past, that somehow the stones still spoke Polish after an 800-year occupation, right? And I try to take this Polish case, which has been sort of made as so singular after forced migration, and normalize it in the context of what's happening in the German cities. The church where Johann Sebastian Bach had conducted the Tomana choir, where he was buried, Bach had never been buried in that church before. Now Bach is suddenly buried in this church. The church in the 1960s is stripped away to look for its medieval past. There is this very similar notion of trying to somehow, in a building, find stones that speak not just German, but to a German past, a past that's, that gives a redeemable narrative about the German nation. Right. And this continues then chapter after chapter. Chapter three, we look at some more symbolic ensembles, not just individual buildings, but ensembles of buildings that are being reconstructed. <clears throat> I make the claim in chapter three that in many ways, your conservative modernism after uh, in, of, the, of the early 1950s is not so different in its intent, in its much more symbolic intent, uh, in terms of some of the artistic craft of it, uh, as in what's going on in some of the socialist realism uh, in the East. Chapter four, then we enter into high modernism, the, the, the cult of glass and steel. And again, rather than claiming some singular status for Wrocław, as if they're just building nostalgic ancient Polish buildings, there was a very, very vibrant high modernist scene in Poland and also in these newly Polish territories. 
In the same manner, by chapter five, we see a backlash of historic preservation against this high modernism, these cities without past, as many people called them. And then finally, chapter six, I call them synthetic cities, where you have this attempt at synthesis of the advent of postmodernism, building more replicas, in many ways a return to some of the stylized modernism we saw in chapter three in the Stalinism and conservative modernism. Then the conclusion is my moment where I also really want to dig down and bring out what was lost in redemptive reconstruction and also even its aftermath. And that's notably the Jewish heritage, especially, which is only really preserved in each city through the activism of a few people, even one person who want to make sure that this element in the layers of the urban history survives in this more homogenized, simplified, uh, redemptive reconstruction we find in all three cities. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I really enjoyed, as a reader, reading the way that you built these architectural biographies. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the source work that went into building each one of these and and how one goes about doing this. Well, thank you, Amber. I mean, this is the time to be doing the history of post-1945, and now at this point, point, post-1989 European history. Uh, Many of the individuals that I interviewed for this project have since passed away. And sometimes an interview isn't just a way to get... um, quotes for your work, but it's a way to really get some context. And, you know, of course, interviews are subjective, but so is what you find in the archives, you know, Mm -hmm. who decided what to keep and what to leave out and, uh, you know, what survived and what kind of uh, context do you, as as the subjective researcher, have going into this? So I found interviews, I found archives, archivists, that you have archivists still, who grew up with these archives. They've been there for decades. They are themselves um, representatives of the Cold War era, some of them. And they can speak to these archives in a, in a very special way that just makes me feel very privileged in a way that many scholars of, say, Nazi Germany had been in the 1960s or, or 70s. So I, I would say that um, it's also very much slow going work. I mean, when I embarked on this project, I remember going to Frankfurt am Main in 2013 for an initial research trip that summer and spending two months in the uh, Institut für Stadtgeschichte and thinking like, you know, it was thrilling to do something new. And I was like, who am I to be doing architectural history? What am I doing? Um, digging in this, this totally unknown place to me. And so it took 10 years to really get to know these cities, get to know these narratives, get to know people, and also get to know the field of architectural history and architectural theory. And one of the most wonderful and intimidating experiences was going to a conference in 2014 when I was a Humboldt fellow in Switzerland. 
at the ETH in, in Zurich, like this institute that is so iconic for architectural history. And I was the black sheep. I was the only historian at the conference. Everybody else was an architectural theorist or an art historian or <clears throat> architects, real life architects. And it was like, it, it made me realize that I had to make certain claims frame my ideas in a certain way that I wouldn't otherwise saying things like, you know, culture and people matter when we're talking about buildings, right? In in a way that for me was really rewarding to think that way and then enter into the sort of theories that they were bringing out and realize just, just how much I don't know. So that, that kind of um, that new theoretical space, new archival space, new lives I could intersect with, and then just, also falling in love with each of these three cities you know i mean i knew of them and had experienced them before the project but just really immersing myself you know giving a talk at the art historical institute in wrocław to the people there and talking with preservationists who had a history from the cold war period and and embrace really in, in measuring some of what they were saying talking to circles of architects getting their stories um in in all three of these cities uh sometimes just talking to random people on the street it was really um an immersive experience that would have been impossible without the funding I received along the way from so many places and especially the Humboldt Foundation. There is so much extremely rich material and imagery in this text. Like all authors, I'm assuming that you had to make some cuts along the way. Is there anything that you had to cut that you really want to share with listeners today? Well, when I cho- thank you for that question. I mean, because when I, when I chose to write an archivally based study on all three cities, uh, a colleague joked that I was going to end up writing three books. Three cities means you're going to write three books, and of course, in the end, I mean, this book is a book about three cities, and it's in one book. But by the same token, I did write two other books along the way that that came out of this project. And even though both of those books, Demolition on Karl Marx Square and Bowling for Communism, are not outwardly comparative, I mean, they both take place in Leipzig, my exposure to sources from comparative contexts in the Three Cities book really enriched both of those books, along with a, with a host of articles that came out of the project. I mean, this has been the project that's just kept giving. Um, so to give a concrete example, uh, when I was doing demolition on Karl Marx Square and really focusing in on this demolition of the intact university church in 1968 in Leipzig against what I f- have measured to be the biggest protest movement in East German history between 50, 1953 and 1989, really showing that East Germany had its 1968 at a local level that had some national and even international resonance. I, I was suddenly struck with the question, you know, the, the communists claimed that they were able to vacate all the bodies uh, that were buried under this church. And of course, there's no data on it, right? I mean, this is all sort of open to speculation and much speculation has been had. What happened to all these graves under this church that have been buried since the Middle Ages? But in Frankfurt, you had another church, the Weissfrauenkirche, that was also demolished in the 50s, actually, to make way for um, a big street, 
And in that case, because it's West Germany, you, you have documentation in newspapers and also in archives of what it took to get all the bodies out from under that church that were removed and and given a, a proper burial on another site. And I realized that it was far fewer bodies were under this church than the one in Leipzig, and that the amount of time and effort it took was exponentially greater than the the handful of days that they had in the case of the of the university church. So my Frankfurt data made it possible for me to argue in the case of Leipzig that it was impossible that these bodies could have been um, removed in an orderly manner. And in all likelihood, most of them were removed with the rubble of the church and just dumped in the pit outside of town. So it's uh, that was a, one case among many where the comparative work I did in Three Cities After Hitler, which was the gigantic project over the last 10 years, informed the two books that, that grew out of it. And so, again, just as my first book, The Lost German East, helped to prepare me to think about Three Cities After Hitler by making me aware of the stakes involved in those eastern territories that were lost after 1945 and the desire to integrate these territories into a meta-project, a comparative project of the post-war world. Three Cities After Hitler fueled my ability to write Demolition on Karl Marx Square, and Bowling for Communism. And of course, both of those books relied on a lot of archival research and oral history in addition. I I actually decided while I was a Humboldtian in 2014 and 15 to keep collecting data and putting things together for three cities after Hitler, but to really focus on writing Demolition on Karl Marx Square first. And Bowling for Communism was originally a few articles, and then it just really crystallized in future summers of research after 2015, 2016, 17, and 18, sort of additional work that let me pick up additional data for three cities after Hitler. But I was thinking much more than about 1989 and the, the 70s and 80s. And so I cut actually way more material than I ever could have really responsibly put into Three Cities After Hitler that really drew into, grew into and became those other books and a lot of archives as well. And, and all of this work has poised me for, for future work. I mean, for instance... Recently, I embarked on an analysis of um, biographies of individuals who worked for the Stasi, really coming in very close to a thick description of human stories. That came out of a lot of work that I did on Three Cities After Hitler. And once again, drawing big conclusions from these intimate human stories that are drawn from extensive reading on this local level. Andrew, we've taken up quite a bit of your time today. Um, So I want to wrap up this interview with my traditional closing question on New Books Network, uh, which you've already kind of started answering, but I definitely want to hear more. What are you working on now? Well, as many of my readers know, this question, what are we working on now, is uh, very much embedded with the pandemic realities that we are existing in. So uh, my goal and hope if I can start getting overseas to do more field work uh, and interviews, is a book that I'm calling The Suffocating City, Crafting Ecology in Leipzig's Coal Fields Under Nazis, Communists, and Capitalists. Uh, and this is in many ways continuing my my you know, marriage to Leipzig. Uh, my, my, of course, I'm married to my colleague uh, and, and best friend, Rebecca Mitchell, but we, we are both of ourselves too wedded to, to Leipzig as a, such a fascinating 
place where so many human stories come out, the second largest city in East Germany. And, you know, as we were as we have experienced Leipzig, we've become very aware that it's not just the built environment that is so intriguing, but also the environmental story, the gigantic coal pits that were dug um, just south of Leipzig, like up to the city perimeter, and also all around the north, uh, this ecological devastation that decayed, the, the helped to eat away at the urban infrastructure and helped to create this sort of malaise before um, the end of communism and also a climate where people were really sort of doing it themselves, entering into this what I call urban ingenuity. The, the ecological uh, catastrophes that were surrounding Leipzig can offer us a really interesting local story that I think can speak to not just the East Bloc at the end of communism, but also the Western world and continuities that continue after into the 90s and speak to our global context of environmental uh, crisis today. So just as I went into architectural history for three cities after Hitler, I want to move into and have been moving into a lot of reading on environmental history. The time to do this is now because you can conduct interviews. I've been doing Zoom interviews. I really want to get over there and start talking to people in person. But talking to people, uh, looking at private papers, getting back into some archives that I know so well in Leipzig, some of them very much undiscovered with their collections, to create this human story that shows that sometimes some of the individuals who showed such ingenuity in the in the 70s and 80s protesting these ecological catastrophes, uh, sometimes coming from the regime level, the local regime level, trying somehow to ameliorate the environmental condition despite such limited resources, that these individuals then sometimes it, with, with, with surprising seamlessness have the gusto and verve and good luck to really take the capitalist world um, by storm, right? Westerners come in with, with money and some ideas, but sometimes it's local ideas from the communist period that helped even some by communist officials that helped to inspire the transformation of this ecological nightmare scene and turn it into what is a beloved recreational district of, of lakes and canals and little um, cafes and such. It's actually a really nice place, this area south of Leipzig today. Um, and I also want to, once again, I'm not trying to redeem communism. I'm trying to, in many ways, question certain presumptions about the triumph of capitalism after 1989 by showing that Really, one one of the ways in which this this area was redeemed and and restored after 1989 was through this this investment from the state, right? This massive investment from the state that came into the area uh, to prove the triumph of the West to make the area then more hospitable for capitalist investment. Imagine if you'd had that kind of investment in Cleveland when it was deindustrialized, right? Or, or parts of New Jersey. It would be absolutely different, I think, because you would have seen 
um, although the fa- there are many, uh, of course, racial factors and such playing in in the in the American context, still that kind of infusion that we believe in this space and we want local people to take possession of it could have could be could be interesting to compare. And then bring I want to bring in a West German example, uh, the example of Garzweiler II, Garzweiler II near Aachen, to show how in many ways, even as we critique the ecological devastation in the East, we're still destroying vast areas in the West. And and protesting it sometimes uh, with with um, with tragic consequences. So this east west comparison I want to keep as part of the story, and this local history uh, as just one of a number of book projects. I want to get back into Silesia. I want to get back to Expellees and Memory. That's another book project I've been putting off for a very long time, but want to do so. A lot on the a lot on the horizon. I hope. Yeah, it sounds like we have a lot of future reading to do. I'm definitely looking forward to your transition from built environments to natural environments. Uh, It's going to be fruitful, I can tell already. Uh, So with that, I just want to take a moment to thank you for joining us on New Books in Eastern European Studies today, Andrew. Um, And remind readers and listeners to please pick up a copy of Andrew Demchuk's Three Cities After Hitler, Redemptive Reconstruction Across Cold War Borders, directly from University of Pittsburgh Press or anywhere else where you can buy books.